This show is part of the Electric Agora network of podcasts. Kevin Curry Knight, it's good to see you. Good to see you, Dan. How are you doing? I'm doing all right. Welcome to everyone in Sophia land. Uh, I'm here with um, uh, EA's own contributor, podcaster, general great guy, Kevin Curry Knight. Um, Kevin is uh, is helping the sites, uh, uh, how shall I say, um, uh, uh, image, since he's much nicer than I am. Shit. Um, <laughs> that's, we're in trouble. If that's, if that's the case, we're in trouble. Um, um, Kevin, today, today we're going to talk about something really fun. Um, you and I did essays. So I wrote an essay called Growing Up Metal that just talked about how I got into heavy metal, what it was like as a kid, and then as an adolescent, and then where I ended up as an, as an adult metal fan. Yeah. You then, not long after, wrote a Growing Up Grunge uh, essay where you did something similar. And I didn't tell you this, um, but Mariah Greg Fling, who does all of our art, yeah, wants to write a growing up emo essay because yes. she, oh nice, I was hoping there'd be a. So she one. used to be emo. Good. I have photos of her. You would not believe from when she was like a teenager. <laughs> I'm sure you, they you will know, appear. You look at her now. You look at her now. I mean, her pictures on the message. You look at her now. She's a beautiful young woman. You know, looks vaguely like a professional. You know, I've got pictures of her with like black rings around her eyes, with this <laughs> pissed off look on her face hanging out with a bunch of real fucking yeah, dorks, yeah. right? I mean, this is what I, I, I can't, would call I can't them. wait to see the article. So anyway, so she wants to do a growing up emo um, um, essay. And yeah. Kevin said, we should do a dialogue on this because it's just too, it's got too many great things to it and it's fun. And maybe yeah. if she does do hers, we'll do like a round table right. at some point, sure. um, which would be a lot of fun. Yeah. Um, so, but this is largely Kevin's idea to collaborate on this. So um, Kevin, why don't you start us off? What did you want to, what did you want to talk about in terms of the intersection of our two pieces? Um, what was it that you wanted to, to do with right. it? Well, first, I mean, maybe first what we should do is just kind of take turns um, on like why we wrote the piece we did and why we consider that that music to be kind of a formative thing like our two essays are, are different mine is probably more like a philosophical reflective essay yours is more like here's the cool shit that about metal that like helped me kind of grow up um at least that's that's my depiction of it um so maybe the best thing to do is kind of like first of all here's a here's a question first of all why is it that music seems to be this uniquely important part of people finding I don't know. character when they grow up. Like whenever you talk to people, they can always identify it with, here's the music I was listening to. Yeah. Yeah. I don't know. I mean, in my day now, I think this is also true in your day because you spoke of it a little bit in the essay um, that you wrote, but in my day, music was very much a marker for what click you belong to. Mm -hmm. And not only did it, in a sense, sort people, but it also determined the fashion that went along with it. It determined even certain mores, right? I mean, certain sort of, 
values is so overused. I, let me say more mores or norms. So, um, and, and, and at least in adolescence, it was related to, you know, success in your dating, your dating universe. Mm -hmm. um, and so, um, but why <laughs> it's music rather than movies or television or other major pieces of popular culture, I don't know. The only guess I would have if I had to is that music strikes me for some reason, even more so than film and television as being a very visceral medium mm -hmm. that, that has a, a physical impact, a bodily impact, mm -hmm. emotional bodily impact that I just don't know that I think any other medium does. Right. Now that would maybe partly explain it. Right. I mean, when you get when you get goosebumps, uh, like consuming media, it's almost always going to be music. It's it's more yeah, than or I just mean, being moved to tears. I mean, yes, I've been moved to tears by films, too. Yeah. Yeah. But a melody will do it much quicker. Well, um, and, and so I, I actually knew several film scoring majors when I was at Berkeley College of Music and took a film scoring class. And one of the things we talked about is how usually when you're moved to emotion in a film, there is music behind it that is significantly a part of what's doing that. So one of the exercises we did very early on was uh, watch a certain scene, like an emotional scene with like an emotional piece of music behind it, and then listen to that track without the music behind it. And needless to say, the difference is huge. Yeah. So yeah. even if you look at the area, the, the, the films that, that, that did that or the scenes that did that, usually if you go back and watch them, it's there's a music behind it that's actually really uh, a huge piece. Yeah, yeah. So that would be my stab at a guess is that music is uniquely visceral in how it's experienced and right. therefore has an effect on us that's more profound than other things. But why would be so connected to your social sorting? I yeah. don't know the answer. Do you have a guess? Yeah, I or, mean, or have, you, or have you looked at? Is there research on this? Or no, but I, I don't think there is. I, there's probably research on it. I've never seen it, but I mean, my stab at a guess. In like addition, why would clicks form around music rather than TV shows you watch? Right. Um, I think it's also because, like, I was thinking about this. Um, also, I think it's also because music, unlike other art forms, entails you in some sense following and possibly identifying with people who are ostensibly being themselves or have a character that you're, that you're identifying with. Like you don't just listen to music. You appreciate the particular musicians that music is coming from, like they become part of it. And then maybe they become stand-ins for a model of person you want to be. But wouldn't that be similarly true with let's say actors that have strong. No, because, or? well, because actors are by definition, well, I mean, unless you're Kristen Stewart or, or something like that, you're playing different people in different roles. So, so the person. Oh, you're playing, I see. I change. see. I see. Whereas obviously like yeah. if a musician did that and they just were deliberately a chameleon, I think maybe a few have gotten away with it. I, I can think, think of, of one. Bowie. I can think, think of, of one big one other than Bowie's. I didn't even think of that one. I was thinking more recent. PJ Harvey, right. Every right. album is completely different, right? I, and and she and she's pretty explicit about like, yeah, I just want to see if I can do these different yeah. things. Like, I want to, yeah. yeah, yeah. And I, but I don't, know, I don't know how big she is anymore. I mean, your point may be right on in the sense that she might have been a lot huger had she not done this, right? 
Right. Um, well, I think I think one piece of one small although piece. Bowie, of- you couldn't get much bigger than Bowie, so that would be a counterexample, right, Bowie? Yeah. But then again, that may become part of their character is they're very like honest about I'm a chameleon. And that's in some ways what you're following. But um, I mean, so one bit of evidence maybe for what I was saying would be in this day and age, I think TikTokers serve an important analogy. Um, Like uh, it's not just musicians because you follow them as characters and people and identify with them as characters and people, this new form of entertainment, which is like the TikTok influencer is having a similar effect and people are following them in, a, in, a, in the same way. Right. And they create clicks in the same way. So I have to think that that's gotta be part of it. Um, yeah. yeah. That's the only, that's the only other guess that I have of what would differentiate like music from actors or something like that. Yeah. Yeah. Um, no, it's, it's very interesting. And I've, I've wondered that myself. Um so if you want to, you want to talk about, if you want to just each of us, maybe give just a little, yeah. a little spiel. Um, so, so why did you do like, of, of all the things you could have done? I remember talking to you when you did the piece. And if I may, you were really excited about like, I'm going to do this piece about growing up metal. And um, you're probably more excited than I've seen you about a lot of the pieces you've written. Um, yes. And the reason is it's not just the growing up metal. I'm more and more getting into the I'm more and more wanting to write more literary autobiographical kinds of pieces um so it's not just the growing up uh, metal it's also the leaving New York essay it's the mm-hmm. uh, nothing applies I mean I did a, I've done a whole bunch of essays where it's very personal it's channeled through a very personal lens without any pretense um, it's about my perspective and what I've seen and experienced, what the impact was and why I think it, it's of interest. Um, now, if you ask me, well, why are you getting more into writing that kind of stuff? That's actually an interesting question. Um, As opposed to the one that I asked, it's which is less interesting. Well, they're both interesting <laughs> related, right? I mean, um, and that is that I am increasingly aware of the severe limitations of philosophy. That's number one. Um, Number two, I am getting more and more conscious of my age. And I'm feeling more and more like I want to take stock. my father dying is dying. And this is also sort of getting me very in a reflective mode. Sure. Um, so that's another thing. Um, a third thing is, this may seem unobvious, but, uh, but, uh, but this is probably the strongest reason. I'm increasingly finding myself disliking the current zeitgeist. Nobody's surprised by this. I don't think anyone's surprised. But... This might be surprising to people. Um, I don't really believe in imposing my will on other people. Not to mention that it doesn't work. Even if you are inclined, it doesn't work. So more and more, I, I, I find myself asking myself, okay, I really hate A, B, C, D, E, F, and G about the world now. 
what am I going to do? Hmm. Am I going to scream at people? That probably won't work. <laughs> am I going to get into endless arguments? Like in the philosophical sense of arguments, yeah. try to yeah. justify why we shouldn't have da 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 da. <laughs> That's not going to work. <laughs> right. And also, I don't enjoy it. Part of writing these kinds of essays is because I'm becoming less and less enthusiastic about arguing with people. And so, and because I'm more and more inclined to think that arguments don't, don't do very much, mm. right? At least not socially. Um, and so more and more, what I think I'm doing is I'm just saying, you know, if there's something I really don't like, what I'm gonna do is simply show it as it was when I liked it. Right. And try to sort of put a person in the space that I was in when I liked those things, right? Interesting. In other words, they're kind of showing rather than telling. Yeah. And thus they do several things at once. They satisfy me personally because the writing side of writing is also becoming more and more important to me. So I want to write in a more literary vein and not in an academic one, because I now care much more about the actual art of writing itself. Um, I, I care more about being a good stylist at this point than being a better philosopher. Because I just think there's a limit to how much philosophy is going to get anybody anywhere. Yeah. Um, a very yeah, you, you and I have talked about this and maybe we'll talk about it later, but we, I think we're in complete agreement. Yeah, quite severe, <laughs> I think. Um, and the more I engage with my colleagues in philosophy online and on Twitter, the more it's just painfully obvious to me as I I've, watch uh, them. How just, they... as, just as a side note, um, in admiration of, um, in some sense, folks like Kierkegaard, I've, uh, I, I've at, at times thought maybe from here on, I should just write in like dialogue form where you don't know what character I am. Yeah, that's great. Because in some ways, that's the way I'm thinking anyway. Yeah. So I might as well just... Getting pigeon, you get avoid being characterized by others in a way that you're then constantly having to fight against. Well, and, and you get alleviated of the idea of, yeah. of concluding something solid at the end that's like, here's yeah. the conclusion that's like literally like the end of the conversation as far as I'm concerned. And I'm like, I, I don't... Whenever I get to that point, I'm like, I, I'm not sure if I can in good faith can do that in as strong a way as people would expect. Yeah. Yeah, I seem, so I guess, I mean, there are a lot of reasons why, not just that I wrote this one, but that I'm writing more and more of this kind of thing yeah. and I'm aiming to it becoming the majority of what I write is my aim. Right. Um, there's a lot of reasons. Some of them, like I said, have to do with disenchantment with philosophy. Some of them have entirely to do with my age and the place in life I'm in. Sure. Um, I'm on the edge of retirement. My parents are in the process of dying. My daughter just started college. Yeah. I'm in very much of a reflective mood. Sure. And, um, and, um, um, so, so maybe, and, so maybe, and, and I just, I'm, I'm tired of arguing. And so rather than write culture war articles, I'd rather do nostalgia pieces. Let culture people war see what I loved so much. Let just people see what I loved so much rather than me trying to convince them that they should love it. 
So let so let me ask you that then. Um, so in this piece, growing up metal, then what is it that you're trying to depict in terms of um, what it was that you loved that you think is in some sense um, either ceased to exist or needs to be recaptured, or is deserving of retelling? Um, in this case, this really was not much of a response to things I don't like, and so in this case. It was more a matter of me. So I have, I would say probably three popular music genres that I like quite a lot. Metal, progressive rock, and then I would put in a combination of like post-punk and new wave, right? I was actually planning on writing essays like these on all of them. Hmm. Um, this really is more part of it, a part of my midlife reasons for doing this kind of work. Yeah. I'm really, really, to the extent that there is a kind of motivation of the sort you're talking about, it's relatively abstract and maybe can be summed up as, as it was wonderful being a, a kid in the American suburbs in the 1970s, my perception, having raised a child now, is that it's not nearly as nice mm. um, to be a child in a middle-class suburb. I'm, I'm being specific because in different demographics, this whole story would be different. Sure. But why now my impression is it's not so nice. Um, and so again, rather than railing against the current situation, rather than trying to come up with arguments as to why the current ethos for young people is terrible, all I'm doing, to, I'm just gonna show you what it was like to be a kid in the seventies yeah. and tell you what was so wonderful, what I thought was so wonderful about it. So what are the key differences when you say you don't think it's as nice as it was uh, in the seventies kind of being, being a kid, what is it that growing up metal um, gave you that you don't think uh, kids are getting today? Well, I mean, like I said, that wasn't the main motivation for this piece. And this, there's an element of that, but it's much, it's more in the background and only comes out here or there. I would say the places where it comes out are in all the places where you see me exercising kind of reckless freedom hmm. without much yeah. supervision and without much correction. In other words, I would say the biggest difference now and the biggest problem now is that kids are overmanaged, oversupervised, overprotected, and over scheduled. As a parent of young ones, I can say that you're definitely correct. So, um, um, and having raised a kid, even with the views I have, I couldn't raise her with as much, with as little of that as I was simply because. The, the the world won't permit it right right um, yeah the way I, the way i put it is almost like um when you're with other parents or even when you're not with other parents there's almost like this prisoners like there's almost like this game theory situation where they're you really don't want to step in with your kid but if you don't everyone's going to watch you and be like what are you why why are you not stepping in and, and also the school they policy. figure you're doing the same thing to, to them right and also the school policies <laughs> and rules i mean you're interacting <laughs> with institutions that you don't control and so you know, while she was probably raised with the least of that sort of thing that someone could be raised with now, um, it wasn't as little, she wasn't as free as I was, that's for sure. Um, um, and um, 
were you a latchkey kid by the way i'm sorry were you a latchkey kid okay no um i find with gen x it really matters whether you're, you're early or late from my cohort there were almost no divorces a cohort or two after me 70 percent we should we should probably mention because um we're almost exactly 10 years apart you're very early gen x and i'm very very late gen x right i was so born in 77 is that your cohort everybody's parents were divorced my cohort almost none my parents were married but they um and they've always been married but they uh they were very much like i remember from maybe late elementary school it's kind of like both of them are working and it's like yeah here's the key we'll be home at six here's a t there's tv dinners and in, in the freezer. When I, I grew up in the time when you came home, your mom was home. And when you went to your friend's house, their mom was home. So, you know, that didn't last much longer past my, my childhood for people. Right. Mine might've been the last cohort for whom that was true. Um, yeah. But it was true for us. Um, yeah. And again, demographics would not have been true for a different demographic in a different, in the inner city or somewhere else. But where I grew up in an American suburb of a major metro area, middle class, 1973 or so, I was six years old, people's parents were not divorced. They just right. weren't. So, um, so anyway, um, um, I really wanted to just sort of show how growing up then, A, how you interacted with music. Right. How you found out about it. Yeah, yeah, that's key. What concert going was like. Um, and talk a little bit also about the substance of the music and, and why you might have gravitated towards one thing or gravitated away from the other. In other words, I tried to explain what the appeal of heavy, um, distorted music was for a young male. Yeah. I talked about male energy. Um, and why I think metal has a distinctively male energy, although that does not mean that only men like it, which obviously right. is untrue right. or make it. Women can make and like things that have male energy, right? I mean, that's just you know obvious, right? Yeah. Um, um, and I also talked about what the impact of it was on it socially. I want people to understand that unlike today where thrash and extreme forms of metal are mainstream yeah in 1980 if you were a metalhead you were a pariah right you could forget about any girl going out with you unless you were in a pretty small clique right that had metalheads and punks but I would not have fit in with them demographically otherwise, because those tended to be the, the, the poorer kids right. from the other side of the tracks who hated all of us right side of the track kids. Mm. I mean, we had actual, what we called greasers in my school. We had 20 year olds yeah. in my school, people who just mm. kept getting left back. Right. Mm. So um, I wanted people to understand that the, the music you listen to, actually determined what social class you were accepted in. It wasn't yeah. like today where you could have 5,000 tattoos and listen to Rammstein 
and hang out with the normal people, right? You would not have been a, a permitted anywhere near the normal people. You would have been a social outcast. And so that played a role. I wonder how much of this also, like when I'm listening to this, I wonder how much of this has to do with um, how the internet has changed how clicks work, right? Like when you had clicks in school, it was local. Like you had a very local pool, <laughs> you, right? It, it, like if you liked a particular style of music, you had a very local pool to pick from. Um, you couldn't go online and find other people. <laughs> there was no such thing or it to wouldn't even online. occur to anyone, right? So- yeah, I wonder, because I, I don't know, honestly, what it's like for, for kids today in terms of clicks. I mean, I obviously know that, that clicks exist and the well, internet has done clicks, nothing to curb that. Music doesn't keep you out of one or put you in one in right. the way that it did back then. Um, right. um, and I wanted these people to see that, right? I mean, because yeah. it's completely alien. Nobody born, nobody born in the last 20 years has seen anything like that right. because of the internet, right? And because of, you know, it's very hard now, it would be very hard now in a school to enforce a coolness code that excluded extreme metal when all you need to do is go online and you can see that extreme metal is really popular, right? Right. Um, um, and all sorts of cool celebrities like it, right? So it would be, would be very hard to maintain, to sort of exercise that kind of a, a control in your school. Whereas back in my day, that was simply what it was. Right. Right. If you listened to metal and it was observed, it was overt and you were out about it and you dressed the part and looked the part, you were not accepted into mainstream social circles. And yeah. That, I mean, the, that affected your dating pool. The last musician I can think of for whom that may have been true about their fans was Marilyn Manson. Perhaps. Literally yeah. the last one I can think yeah, of yeah. in terms of like you were just a legit outcast. Yeah. And I could see that. But then that became mainstream too, very, very right. soon after, right? I mean, right. so I wanted to give a glimpse into that as well as talk about metal specifically and my experience with it and how I got into it and why and how I fell out of it and then got back into it again, which may strike people as weirdly opportunistic, but that is how it was. It was. Yeah. It wasn't just that you loved, liked what you liked and that was it and you let it all hang out. There was a social impact to what you liked and hung out, let hang out, right? And I want people to see that. Like yeah. I thought it was, it was it was it was our reality, and today it would be unimaginable, right? But it was our daily, common, ordinary reality to the point to where even the the, the different cliques owned different parts of the school. Mm -hmm. Yep. You just didn't go there or there. Yeah, I remember her gang hung out. I remember the cafeteria in the morning, like you, you could draw a map and you could know kind of like, I don't think we had parts of the school, but you could definitely draw a map and, and figure out like who's, what kids are going to be sitting where yeah. in that, in that, uh, in that cafeteria. The big deal for me in high school was I started hanging out in the student lounge. Why was that a big deal? Well, that was where the blacks hung out. Okay. Now, why did I all of a sudden start hanging out there? Why? You're going to laugh because this is similar to what we're talking about. Because I started getting into Kung Fu movies. Okay. And who are the biggest fans of Kung Fu movies in the early 1980s? Mm. Black rap fans. Mm. <laughs> you think right. I'm kidding? 
Wu Tang didn't come out of nothing. Right. Hong, those Hong Kong Chinatown movies were popular with black people for 20 years before yeah. uh, Wu Tang. Wu Tang simply sort of expresses that, but that was already all over the place. And so I was really into martial arts movies. And so I'm walking every day by my student past the student lounge while the black kids are hanging out and they've got a boom box and they're blasting hip hop, what then we would have called rap. Yeah. But instead of, and sometimes they were break dancing, but sometimes they're doing karate katas. Hmm. I'm like, all right. So I went and people would have been scared to do what I did. I just walked over there, started talking to them. Pretty soon I'm getting invited to go to their houses over the weekend to watch because they've got Hong Kong weekends where they're doing nothing but watching. You get the point. Yeah. yeah. Um, That's when I started the person listening to rap. Right. Well, like you said, it's not, I mean, like, like it's, it's not like we had the internet where you can go kind of look up these things and then algorithms will tell you like, (laughs) here's where you go to find your, your group and, yeah, like no, this and was all happening. One more last thing about this, just because it's so unbelievable. Yeah, you'll you'll like this in particular, and then I'll stop, and you can go. Um, so liking liking kung fu, then gets me to where now I'm hanging out in the student lounge where the black only the black kids hang out. That then gets me into rap music, right? Here's the last bit. One of the guys who I'm hanging out with there, um whose house I'd go to on the weekends for Hong Kong weekends, right? Says to me, hey, my old Kung Fu teacher's coming back to town and he's gonna start a class. You wanna, you wanna join with me? So I said, absolutely. So I go down to the, to the, to the rec center that's in the middle of our, you know, the, the, the quote unquote ghetto in my town, which is about one block. <laughs> um, um, I go down there and the Kung Fu teacher is a nice guy, very intense, very strange. Who is this man? Does it turn out to be Professor Griff from Public Enemy? Oh, was my martial arts teacher for three years. Yeah. Wow. And was he in Public Enemy? He was still in Public Enemy at that point because I know he got kicked out. This would have been right around when they were forming. Oh yeah. Okay. Right. So this would have been right around then. And they're all from Long Island. Right. That's the reason why he was there and why my friend knew him. Wow. Right. Yeah. Wow. And here's the, here's the, the cherry on the, on the, and I don't know where it is. I have to find, dig it out. I've got a Quran signed by him. Signed by Professor. And Chris. he has a Hebrew Bible signed by me because we used to fight about religion. Oh, okay. Anyway, that's that's the end of, of 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 my spiel. But yeah, I in that essay was really just trying to reimmerse myself, yeah, and reimmerse the and immerse the reader in a world that to anyone who's young is going to be very very different. Oh yeah, um, but with music that they know, right? Because they know yeah. all of it now because of you know everything's available, right? Yeah, yeah. So that's but- why and. I mean, it's interesting because when I read your essay, um, I mean, like one of the things that strikes me about metal and particularly in the kind of later iterations that we will call hair metal, I guess, it's two things at once, which seem really contradictory to today's mindset, which is number one, it was very aggressively and unapologetically masculine. Like you said, that masculine energy. 
uh, so to speak. And number two, it was very gender bending, whether consciously or not, in the sense of like, I mean, with hair metal, you know, it, it calls to mind, you know, everything from D. Snyder to Poison. Um, and you're thinking like, these are men who are very self-consciously, not only have kind of long permed hair, but rouge and lipstick. And, you know, D. Snyder was kind of a caricature. And I think he said that like after, after the Twisted Sister days, like I consciously wanted this to be a sort of like costume that I was wearing. But like these two things at the same time, like unapologetically masculine, but in style, very blurring between masculine and feminine. It just seems so odd when you look back at it today. And I mean, I, I remember I, I, if you ask me why that all happened, I don't know. Um, yeah. I mean, look, clearly it was to some degree a glam revival. Yeah. Um, and I will say this, though. That sort of contradiction has been pretty common in rock now for a very long time. So there was mm -hmm. nothing feminine about the New York Dolls, despite the fact of the way they dressed up. If you listen to the music, right? There was nothing feminine about Kiss. If you listen to the music, right? It's right. just straight out male rock and roll, right? Um, there's nothing female feminine about Motley Crue, <laughs> right? Um, very aggressive. Um, and so I don't know the answer to that. In other words, I don't know why you get that weird juxtaposition, but it it never seemed contradictory to anyone because you can think about it. It goes back to the seventies. I know it because what because like it's I was weird, talking right. Yeah, I mean, I was talking to my uh, students in in a diversity class about that, and I had to think back to like, you know, because I remember hair metal, and I, I you know, that was kind of like early, late elementary, middle school for me, and it. I recall the same thing you do. I don't think anyone ever thought that this was like bizarre, <laughs> like that we're listening to very unapologetically masculine music coming out of a person who's wearing rouge and, and lipstick. Yeah, I don't know. I it mean, just the, didn't. Yeah. The I, motivations I, are probably also different. So like the reason the New York Dolls did it is probably completely different from the reason why Motley does it. Yeah. Um, 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 but then, right. Or, and, or and, kiss versus poison or, you yeah. know. And this uh, sort of brings us into, into grunge in a certain way, because the grunge movement, which, which came, you know, uh, what, roughly 10 years or so after, was it? Um, well, if you want to say after, depending on what, if you say. Depending on when you set the date. I usually set metal? it. So, I mean, yeah. hair metal by, I would say. 87 88 yeah so it's so right yeah yeah and i think nirvana and some of the earlier bands are already starting by around 88 yeah 88. talking 1990 1990 yeah, when is, i think when's the the when's bleach the album before nevermind is well um, the the thing about bleach is that nobody ever heard of bleach until nevermind came came out like the no, fact no, that, that i'm was just starting, trying to think of the years right? right so when they were probably would have been it would have been like 89 right so they probably were doing songwriting and rehearsing 88 89 yeah, yeah. yeah. um so I, I i really see it coming out of once hair metal is exhausted, this kind of, and then yeah. any hair metal that was left was quickly cleansed, right? Because this was so much more vital and vibrant and had so much more life yeah. to it. And Yeah. Um, and you could say like, at least in the sense that someone looking back on it would say like, 
grunge seemed like stylistically a, a reaction to everything that hair metal was like a, a throwing away of everything that hair metal was if hair metal was polished in production grunge prided itself on being unpolished if if hair metal was all about kind of the the attire and getting the hair right and every uh, getting the appearance right grunge was unapologetically um i guess lazy about appearance um so it, it's like it, I, th- I think look, the, you know, i like the thing that i think is strongest though which you mentioned is the difference of the ethos right that is the yeah. and so i don't even want to specify hair metal let's just say metal right yeah with this masculine energy and very masculine how shall i say um affect almost right um 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 you know girl chasing and, and all this sort of stuff you know i'm thinking about like you know everything from van halen to you know judas priest or iron maiden or something like that um and grunge is not just different in terms of the look and the style but completely different in that regard right maybe talk about that because it plays into your essay yeah this thing of shifting about masculinity and so maybe talk about that because i think that's the most interesting intersection or one of the most interesting intersections yeah it does um well first of all i should say when i kind of wrote this essay one of the things that i realized you know i'm I'm in my early 40s i'm not going to specify which early i am because you know i don't want to give that away but um you know, I'm at this point in history, like historically, where I can look back at myself as if I were a different person. I'm reflecting on someone who's a, who's a different person, which is <laughs> odd because I don't think I'd really done that before. But I'm looking back on this kid, this high school kid who's a different person than who I am. So I can look back uh, as if I'm looking at someone else. And, you know, what occurs to me when I'm thinking about this, this my experience with grunge is that in middle school, again, we didn't have the internet. Our friends were local. You had a set of local options and those were the kids you had to pick from. And the kids I had to pick from probably were not the greatest fit. They weren't a horrible fit. I didn't like dislike hanging out with these kids, but they were very masculine. They were very like, they were, they excelled at sports. They ended up going to a very sports centric high school. That was like a Catholic school. But when we were in middle school, like I remember having to get up the motivation of, Oh God, I got to go out and play another pickup football game. Okay. Yeah, I guess I'll do that. And um, so they go to one high school. All of them go to the same high school. I go to the local public school and I'm like, okay, well, I guess I can kind of start clean, which is great in one way, but it's kind of terrifying in another way because it's almost like not having an identity anymore. So, but I still had a few friends and one of them floated to me like this was the year that Nirvana came out with Nevermind. And then of course, you know, Pearl Jam's 10 became big, which technically was released before Nevermind um, and all this stuff. And it's this very different um, kind of idea of not only music, but a very different idea of masculinity. Um, I don't think it was so much evident on Nevermind, although a little bit, it was definitely evident in um, kind of how Nirvana carry themselves and how Pearl Jam carried themselves. And then the personas um, of the, of the front men. Yeah. Right. They were, they were a lot more willing to like talk about emotion and um, be open about, you know, um, emotional struggles and turmoil. And, you know, I had this thing happen to me and I'm going to write a song about it. Um, and there's very because, little, there's very little about, you know, chicks and girls. I mean, it's just not, it doesn't None. have not just the masculine energy or aff- it doesn't have the masculine affect. Right. I mean, it doesn't. 
Yeah, I mean, the only the, not if, singing about tits and ass, right? I mean, if I recall right, the only song on Nirvana's Nevermind that was about a female is the song that Cobain wrote. Why am I? Not, I'm not remembering the title, but the song he wrote where he puts himself in the shoes of someone who's like who raped and tortured someone else with the idea that I don't want to glamorize this. I want to make this very heinous sounding, not in a, not in the way a metal, not in the way like a hardcore metal act would do it, but in a way of like, I want you to feel for the person that's being tortured. And I want you to feel disgust yeah. for the person I'm putting myself into. What is that song? I can't, uh, I cannot remember. Isn't me, have a seat, let me clip. Your dirty wings. I, I completely I know the song, the song, but I don't right? know the name of it either. Right. But it's like, that's the only song that's about a female and it's completely disgusting. Yeah. It's, and it's not about it's supposed a to be the way that a Van Halen song is about a female, right? There are no beautiful right. girl songs, right? I mean, um, 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 yeah. And, and, and so same what, with Pearl Jam. About that aspect of it that so you, you, you were talking about you had these manly friends that then went off and did manly things that you didn't really feel very connected with. Right. Um, and then later on, you're in a group of, I guess, more like-minded people who are, yeah. who are in, who introducing you to this grunge music. Yeah. That also de-emphasizes that kind of, that version of manliness, right? Yeah. Well, look, I, I mean, I also like you and I, you mentioned you grew up in a family where like, your mother was was home and in a neighborhood where that was like mothers were home that's what they did and my mother was home in elementary school but i'll always like to say i grew up in a family where my mother was kind of like a proto-feminist who never used the word feminism but she like got a, a a job as first she was like doing daycare then she did temp work then she got hired by the company then she became an upper level executive in that company so i remember like in high school her coming home and like telling jokes as executives will do about the stupid men who are like working underneath her and it just wasn't so i didn't really have you know i had a mother who was working every bit as as much as my father was working and i think my probably my how i conceived of masculinity was partially affected by that um you know grunge wasn't androgynous but no, it was definitely not. but it was definitely the kind of like masculinity that gave you a very wide range to, to pick from. Um, yeah, and I, I definitely never wanted to pick that, that stereotypically masculine range, not because I didn't like the stereotypes, but because I just didn't fit the stereotypes. There's no good name for it. Um, um, for, 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 for what they're doing. It just seems to me that you, you look at, you look at Kurt Cobain or, um, what's his face for or Eddie Vedder or Kurt Cornell or, in or terms Cornell. Of their presentation their dress, their, um, <clears throat> it's, I would call them, put them in the mold of what used to be called the sensitive man. They're kind of like that, dirty, yeah. they're like dirty Alan Aldas, right? Um, which I think is part of why I always had kind of contempt for them. Um, I definitely come from the earlier <laughs> model. So when I see like Kurt Cobain, you know, in a sweater and stuff like this, it's just like, what a fucking dork, right? You know, that's like the first yeah, thing yeah. I think. Yeah. Right. Um, <laughs> um, um, because I'm my present the way I think of presentation is locked into an older, older yeah, model. Like I, like, like I was always an introvert. 
I never liked sports terribly as much as my friends did. I always liked artistic stuff more than they did. I remember even as a kid, I never liked playing fighting games. I always loved playing games that involved some sort of cooperation. Like I, 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 and grunge music gave you those role models. Those were the role models that you had. Yeah. Uh, And it was, it was, it was nice. Um, So I definitely feel like I was one of the grungers who was definitely in it more less as a bandwagon and more because like I needed something like this well, as like spoke, a model. It spoke to you. Yeah. It spoke it, it to you did. where you were. It was something yeah. you could identify with. It was something that um, 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 made sense to you. I mean, um, <clears throat> one thing that though, I don't know that came out in the essay, <clears throat> which I'm curious about. So grunge had this on the one hand, very opposite from metal um, sensibility, affect, etc. Um, in terms of the masculinity, the manliness, all of this, the subject matter. <clears throat> but tonally, it could be quite heavy. Oh, yeah. <clears throat> so here's my question. See, for me, <clears throat> the heavy was tied directly to the manly and the masculine. <laughs> right. And I tried to explain in the, in the, in the, um, my essay, how that, what the logic of that is. Why does thick, it's distorted, heavy guitars attached to the manly and the masculine. And I talked about power fantasies and all sorts of things like that. Yeah. How did, how did you interpret from your mm. framework, the tonal, the tonal qualities? In other words, why didn't, why didn't what you just described mean you were going to like gentler music? Rather than <laughs> hard music played by gentler people, I guess. Well, I mean, <clears throat> that's a really interesting question. I mean, first of all, I was probably always a bit more into the more, um, this is a horrible term to use for it because it's not accurate, but the mo- more melodic, <clears throat> conscious stuff like Pearl Jam, Soundgarden were probably the more artistic of the two groups I would fair to, in terms of just like harmonic sophistication and um so i was probably always more uh, attracted to that stuff a little bit i don't know that i ever even thought that there was anything weird about the idea that you have these sensitive more sensitive men playing kind of harder music i don't know like if something softer would have come about i don't know if i would have rejected it I don't think the hardness of the music was was anything that factored into it. It's just that the the tonality of metal, if I'm thinking, try, if I'm trying to pick, sort of depict it, you know, yeah, yeah. But this is what you weren't about, right? And yet, right, musically, yeah, Soundgarden is, you know, right, right. And so what I'm wondering is why didn't the tonality put you off, or did yeah. you did you interpret the tonality different? In other words, did people, did the sensitive young men yeah. like you got into that music? Right. Think of the we, heaviness differently than we thought of the heaviness of Sabbath. Or yeah, we, we, right? we might have. And this this gets me into sort of one of my issues when you like you talked about wanting to write this essay partially because you think that in certain ways, the present generation is sort of lacking in something that, that you had. I feel like one of the things we had that the generation today doesn't 
and I've said this to my classes, I'm old enough where I can say like, I think y'all are doing it wrong. I just, I just do. Is we did, we thought of ourselves in some ways as loosening the categories of what was possible. Like you have this set of traits that we think of as masculine and the set of traits that we think of as feminine. And I feel like the grunge generation was like, it wouldn't be cool if we just mash this up and say like, fuck the idea that you have to choose a side in a bundle of stuff. Like you can choose three things from this bundle, the masculine bundle and two things from this feminine bundle. And it's still legitimate. I feel like that's what we had. And ideally the current generation is supposed to have it, but I feel like the internet and social media has made us all so damn tribal that ironically we hunker back down in these labels. Like, I feel like if the trans phenomenon really, really came about during our generation, we wouldn't have said, we would have said, that's okay. You don't have to choose male or female at all. Like period. You just don't have to great. You like dresses, you can be male. And there's nothing odd about this. Where they feel like well, today, it's like, okay, that means you're female. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I, guess. I, I just feel like our generation, if we would have kept on that track and if the present generation would have kept <clears throat> on that track, it would have been like, okay, cool. We would have made a space where like men can wear dresses and wear pink and do a lot of feminine stuff. And you don't have to feel pressure to identify as female. You don't have to feel a pressure to identify as anything. Does that does that make sense? I feel like that's why the tonality well, no, I, didn't listen, turn us sense. off. The thing is, it's an una, it's it's an open question, right? In the sense that I don't know whether. I mean, it could be that the reason it kind of snapped back is because that was not going to be sustainable, right? I mean, it, 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 it could it, turn right, out. It, it could be. It could just turn out, and I don't know how, even how we would find out whether this was true or not. But it could turn out to be the case that underlying physiology and anatomy and stuff is far more determinative of you know things right. like tastes and social such that you know sensitive men is just always going to be the minority always no, right i mean that's just, i don't know i mean we just right. don't know i mean right so maybe um, there were fewer maybe there are fewer males who are willing to kind of follow in that Suit. I mean, I don't want to paint the grunge generation as any sort of like genderless utopia either. I, you know, grunge obviously skewed heavily male. No, um, we're talking. We're talking in and, contrast with metal of the previous era, right? Right. So I, I'm I'm very comfortable with the way you're describing this. I think it's very accurate. Um, and the only really big grunge act I could female grunge act I can think of that really was at the same was Veruca Salt. I mean, right. you could you could you could say L7 had L7 had also. But you could say I would I would also put the breeders. Um, I mean, they're not completely female, but Kim Deal is yeah. as um, yeah. Kurt Cobain said, the breeders album. The first album was one of his favorite albums of all time. Yeah, um, yeah. I but still that, but that to brings us first, to that first those first two Veruca Salt albums, which I think are really good. Um, but that brings uh, us to another interesting thing about grunge. I think if I if you really look back at it, that. I could be wrong about this, but grunge was the first generation where a female act and a male act could play the same music and it was okay. Like the breeders in Nirvana could have interchanged songs and you wouldn't have known that there was anything off about this. What do you, I don't know. You don't, you don't mean literally the first, right? You're talking more just about that. It would have been acceptable. What would have been very exceptional now is not particularly notable because I was going to say, look, you can go all the way back to 1976 when Joan Jett and Lita Ford, yeah. and so the Runaways, I actually write about them in the essay. You can go back earlier 
Yeah, that's true. To um, Susie Quattro, 1970, right? Um, I guess even Motown, probably some of those songs were interchangeable. In fact, factually, they may have been interchanged because Motown artists yeah. often. And in metal, you had girl stuff. school. You had girl school in the yeah. early late 70s and early 80s. Who Motorhead was a huge fan of. They did covers of Motorhead songs. Motorhead, I think, did a cover of one of their songs. Um, but I, what I would agree with you is that this was uncommon, atypical. And what you're describing is much more really interchangeable. Like nobody would have even blinked at it, right? I mean, like. Right. Well, I just, I, I just watched an HBO documentary called okay. Jagged about Alanis Morissette in 99, which is not grunge, but it's on the heels of grunge. Yeah. And her, her ethos was very grunge. And I think it's fair to say that she was the first female act to really just be blatantly like, yes, I'm female. I'm not going to like dress up in any sort of way. I'm just going to dress up like someone hanging around the house. And I'm going to sing about stuff that's completely non-gendered. Not like as a statement, but just this is Wait who I am, she, motherfucker. Non-gendered. All she does is complain about men. Oh no, no, that was actually one of the knocks in the in the in the film was if you listen to the album, like there's two songs that complain about men. The rest of them talk about ironies of life and oh, yeah, 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 stuff yeah. like that. So it was yeah. very non-gendered. At, um, you know, the it, big it, hit is the one where she complains about the men, um, right? Um, but in a, yeah, but yeah, yeah. 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 So, yeah, I feel like Did you buy all that. I mean, I that struck me as marketing. I mean, I. I, She started off as a mall rat. Yeah, no, that's right. And And so I I did. I was I was skeptical about the um, genuineness of this makeover and all the over the over singing that's on Jagged Little Pill. Well, a lot of those were somebody trying way too hard. A lot of those were demos. They didn't think that those that those versions would make the cut. Those weren't the versions that were supposed to go on the album. Those were the versions the record company said, yeah, we like these versions enough to put them on the album. <laughs> and Alanis was like, are you kidding? Well, wait a minute. So, no, the, so the, the cuts yeah. that are on the album are not her cuts? No, there, there are a lot of them were demos that were just recorded for the purpose of giving them to the record company to get a deal. And they were going to, usually you go in and re-record them and they didn't re-record a lot of those things. The record company said, yeah, we like these. We're going to put them on the album. But I mean, this brings us to like an interesting thing about ah, the, authenticity, the authenticity, right the, the, right. the paradox of authenticity. Right. So, yeah, it's I, I remember feeling even at the time a little bit of like there's something weird about this because you we're all sitting around. About, you haven't talked about that angle yet. So you should probably summarize that because we, we were just talking about the masculine element, but you haven't started right. talking yet about grunge and the authenticity element. So maybe give a little summary of what you said. Right. So metal arguably didn't have this problem. And I think there's some counterexamples, but in most cases, metal did not have the problem of when you bought an Iron Maiden CD, that cartoonish cover made clear that you were buying an act. You were buying like performance. It's let us take you into this magical world. Yeah. It's not real. Like Megadeth was the same. Right. Grunge was sold itself on authenticity. When you bought Nirvana's album, you bought the bearing of Kurt Cobain's soul. Right, right. When right. you bought Pearl Jam's album, you bought the bearing of, of, of their soul. If they were ever to come out and put a cartoonish cover on and say, we're going to write fantasy songs, 
they would have lost their market. Right. Because, Nobody's listening to them for that. So yeah. it was it was a selling of authenticity, which brings up the obvious problem, both for the artist and for the fans of here we all are making this market out of this act that builds itself on not being an act. How do we do that? How do you do that? How do you exist? How do how are all of us wearing flannel shirts and saying we don't care about our appearance when the very reason we put on a flannel shirt is because it points outward and signals a group affiliation that we say we're not yeah. about. Yeah. <laughs> it's, so how do you what do you think of that? I mean, how do you how did it affect you then? And what is it? How does it affect you now? Well, I remember thinking it was weird then. I don't think I could have like put my finger on exactly what it was, but it was like something is off about this. It feels like it's a performance that's trying not to be a performance. And how do I feel now? I just, I feel like people say that, that the, the fact that this contradiction couldn't resolve is what killed grunge. I don't know if that's, if that's the case. I think that's just a contradiction that's inherent in modern childhood. Like you want to belong, but you want to be an individual. People are really saying that the the, the paradox yeah, of authenticity that, is what killed grunge. That's sort of one of the the, the takes. Like um, there was a, a a book that I had read about grunge when I was reading this, and it was kind of that was one of the takes. And um, there's some YouTube videos by some YouTubers about grunge that talked about how like this whole thing was kind of absurd and it wasn't sustainable because of that contradiction, and that's kind of why it fell uh, by the wayside. I would have thought if you'd asked me, you know, given that you don't actually know, what would you guess is the reason why grunge fell? I would have said because it's sonic template was too narrow. How much of that can you listen to? Like, it's just, there's not enough variation. There's not enough dynamics. There's not enough, you know, um, they would have had to start doing something different as musicians themselves. I mean, look, how many bands can be like ACDC and make the same album for 50 years? Right. Very few. Right. right? Um, um, what becomes um, novelty becomes played out and it has to become something else, which entails the destruction. And the artists themselves get sick of doing it. I mean, that's the other thing, right? I mean, and so I just thought it was because grunge had such a narrow specific sonic template. Yeah, it was bound yeah. to be short. I had not heard the authenticity paradox given as a reason. Well, I would almost also say that, I mean, another thing that, that, that folks in these videos and stuff have said is that grunge wasn't as tight a movement, movement, so to speak, as some of the others were. Like, there was really nothing sonically similar between Pearl Jam, Nirvana, and Alice in Chains. Just, there's not that much. I mean, aside from just a general ethos, they're from Seattle. Pearl Jam is an outlier. They're in some sense like channeling classic rock. You don't think that there is a common... I think there's a common... I would... I think there are markers by which you can immediately tell something is grunge. Um, would you put... pro? I mean, any one of those you think of that of doesn't the ones include you mentioned, Pearl Jam? Yes, of the ones you mentioned, yes. Oh, okay. I, um, I wouldn't think Pearl Jam would be in that. Yeah, th- yes. Um... um there's a certain guitar tone template, I think, that remains pretty consistent. Mm. And there's a, t- there's a common vocal timbre. Um, 
Yeah, kind of like that. That, that I've tried visceral... to mock, that I can that I can mock, but yeah. I can't imitate. Right, the, it's kind of a visceral, almost uh, uh, purposefully. Makes, I, I yeah. make a Popeye face when I do it. Yeah. It's yeah. actually one of the things I really hate about grunge music. Why I don't listen to it <laughs> is I find the vocal that aspect of the vocal really grating. Um, yeah. It's kind of twangy almost. It's the most pronounced in Alice in Chains um, in terms of the, that vocal twang. But you yeah. hear it in all of them. There's a little bit of an ah. That and I, again, that if we really, if we extend it out, saying, to, yeah. even hearing it makes me violent. Like, and again, and again if we extend like, it out to Alanis Morissette, I feel like she's almost one of the more egregious. Yeah, I uh, think she is perpetrators of that sound. Right? Vocalist I've ever heard, uh, <laughs> and hers is music where I find the vocals so hateful that it makes me unable to even listen to the music. Mm. I feel like I'm listening to somebody who is over singing so much. Yeah, because they're trying to convince you of a passion they don't actually have, right? Mm. That's why I said the whole thing strikes me as marketed and calculating, right? I don't I don't buy the emotions because the vocal performance is so over the top and an un, unpleasant to listen to. Um, yeah. Um, yeah, I mean I think I think I think metal in some ways had um, potentially an advantage over grunge in a certain way. Like okay, so grunge is about authenticity and it's usually about some sort of angst kind of for being forlorn. So what happens when you become a pop star and you have to write your second and third album? Like, right. It's sort of like the, the problem that rap artists will often have where they write something about kind of like life in the hood. And then you get out of the hood for a few years and you become this, this star. Like, how do you write about the hood in a way that's credible? Yeah. Right. It's, it's, it's very hard to sustain that. So because you think some, that like, the, 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 it was doomed because everything about it would be undermined by any success it had. Yeah. Oh yeah. Because like grunge acts, like the thing was to pretend that or to pretend or really believe you didn't really want the success. Yeah. And that was like the grunge thing to do, but then you have this catch 22, right? You have the success and you obviously give interviews but in the interviews, you say you really don't want to be in the interview and you like give that affect of not wanting to be there and looking over here and picking at your face. <laughs> like, yeah. But it's okay. Is that an act or is that because you showed up to the interview? But this was a problem. I mean, I mean, this before the grungers, the punks had this problem, right? I mean, um, and it's sort of why, you know, punk ended, right? I mean, I mean, it went on but really just became a pop, a form of pop, right? I mean, I mean, um, um, once you get into the 90s yeah. and punk now is being heard at these huge festivals that are, that are filled with brands, right? Um, and where there's enormous amounts of money involved and, 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 you know, and, you know, bands like Green Day and stuff are selling millions of records you're not you're just not credibly punk anymore right yeah and that's the point at which yeah. you have to turn your turn into something else well I, the amount of the amount risk of... of this coming off is ridiculous right and and yeah and i i mean i do think green day are ridiculous right i mean i laugh at them when i when i see them i laugh right yeah because i see a band that wanted so bad to be one thing and turned into something else 
yeah. and either doesn't realize it or is so cynical because of rich, being rich that they don't care, right? Well, how did you feel about how did you feel about um, Metallica when they put out the Black Album? Because they experienced was, the same. God awful. Yeah, I mean that's to me when that's when I lost all interest in the band and I never retained any after. Now, <clears throat> I think what has to happen is you need to turn into something else, right? And you know. Just like I, as a 53-year-old man, there's certain things that if I tried to do them would make me look ridiculous. Right. You can't be a thrash band when you're 60 years old. Right. Um, you can't be punks when you're rich. Right. You can't be grungers when you're popular. And yeah, so this, and it, it, I don't see how it's yeah. a paradox. What it means is you need to evolve as a musician, right? Yeah. Um. Yeah. Yeah. It's well, it's also, it also kind of opens up that question before we talked about kind of music determining your clicks. And the problem is for a click to be valuable, it has to be tight. It has to be small, right? If you have a thousand members in your click, right. It's not valuable. Right. Liking Madonna, membership is too low. Liking Madonna doesn't put you in a click because everybody likes it. Right. I mean, it's like, right. Um, right. Um, so, so when the music gets too big, it's hard to fashion a sense of unique identity out of a music that everyone else also likes. And we grungers tried as hard as we could to do that, <laughs> but okay, I think so we had very degrees of success. But that's interesting. So let's, let's, let's stick on stand on that one for a minute since we still have 10 minutes. Um, let, let's stick on that for a minute because. So I, when I, when I was in junior high school and high school, so this was sort of like the peak era of clicks, right? Um, that are immortalized in films, right? John John Hughes, especially, but not just John Hughes, you know, other, you know, Fast Times of Richmond, all these movies, right? The clicks are everything, right? Um, but clicks were based on hugely popular things, right? I mean, in other words, I remember in, in Fast Times of Richmond High, there's this great thing where they're in the cafeteria. It's the famous scene with the carrot, right? But... Mm -hmm. The banter that they're having before that all starts is that um, um, the Phoebe Cates character is saying to the Jennifer Jason Lee character, she's pointing out all the girls and what what who they're channeling, right? So there's the Pat Benatar girls, mm -hmm, right? Mm -hmm. They all got short hair and headbands. There's the this one, you know, because they've all got these and the others. Now, these were all hugely popular acts, right? These were not niche acts. And yeah. I almost wonder whether it makes a huge difference whether the identification is to belong to a beleaguered clique. Right. Because, you know, if you look at my, it's amazing. If you look at, I'm, one day I'm going to scan this and, and, and post it. I don't know if your high school did this, but every yearbook, every year, they had one a giant picture of all the seniors like in a huge mob right mm. so we did this and um every year and um what you'll see is huge mob right and in different sections people are holding up signs of different bands <laughs> so like you see a bunch of people over here they're like holding up like bruce springsteen and billy squire and like all yeah and then you got people over here and they've got like Black Sabbath and this and that and the other. I'm holding up a Spinal Tap song, right? Um, <laughs> just because I thought it would be funny, right? Um, and confuse people. Um, so I don't know if something being a huge or popular act prevents it from being part of a click identification. 
Right. I mean, it's only if the click identification is it's some sort of beleaguered defensive. It's us against the world sort, like you know what I mean. But that's right. not so necessary yeah. for clicks, yeah. right? Like there's a difference between being in a kind of the Backstreet Boys click when that was a thing versus being in like um, the metal click. Yeah, because, because when you were in the, you know, yeah, the popular kids in my high school. It's interesting. So in my high school, the popular group. What did they like? Either classic rock of the Bruce Springsteen variety up through like someone like Billy Squire, maybe. Or popular kind of like new wave. Duran Duran, you know, um, um, uh, 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 Human League, you know, all this kind of stuff, right? That's what the popular kids liked. Right. And it, it, they would brand themselves that way, you know, by by painting things on jackets or by pins or whatever, right? Um, the the nerds like different music, right? The 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 and the 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 greasers were the ones who liked metal and all that, and they were not popular and they were delinquents and they were all left back and all that. So so that's sort of how it went. I, we didn't really yeah. have clicks that were defensive. Okay. Like even the dweebs, you know, that's a large click, even though they're not popular. Right. They're the ones getting wedgies and stuff, but there's a lot of them. Right. And they've got their own thing. And actually at a certain point, they just start dating each other. They don't even give a shit that they're not popular. Right. Right. As long as you're not getting beaten up. <laughs> um, yeah. I'm talking about in my day. Right. Yeah. Where that was just common. Um, and so we didn't really have defensive clicks. It sounds to hmm. me though, like you did, right? I mean, no, well, 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 grunge. I mean, the the grunge circles I was in did fancy themselves as a defensive click. I mean, I start the story in my article of hanging out at a coffee house with other grunge kids who are whining about how like we're so misunderstood. And I'm like, you've got to be kidding, right? Like, you're we're not misunderstood. We're we're listening to the number two album on the it Billboard smells chart like Team right Spirit now. has we're, been on MTV every five seconds. We're not beleaguered, right? I mean, we we brought we bought our grunge shirts at the local, you know, JC Penney's because they have a whole rack of them over there now. So, like, we're not beleaguered. But I think it's partially because a lot of the folks probably had stories that were sort of like mine. They felt like nothing before this happened was something they could identify with. They may may have felt that pressure to kind of like conform to you know, well, I guess I have to listen to, to hip hop or, well, I guess I have to, um, you know, listen to metal or whatever. So maybe that's why we fa fancied ourselves kind of defensive. But then again, you know, the, 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 the icons of grunge did fancy themselves as sort of not defensive, but outcasts, right? Like the story about Chris Cornell was that he was like a high school dropout who had a, you know, home life where nobody really got him. And, and the, the same with, you know, Kurt Cobain and um, Eddie Vedder's story about being a surfer from California. We all politely ignored that because that didn't fit the narrative, but yeah. So that's why we did fancy ourselves as, as more let of a defensive. Let me ask you though, like, how bad, I mean, how badly were you treated in your school? I, I wasn't treated badly. I was ignored. Um, and well, I wanted why, it why would you be, why would you need a defensive click? I mean, back in my day, if you were unpopular, you were getting the shit beaten out of you. Yeah. You were getting your money taken. You were getting, I mean, why, if you weren't being mistreated and abused by the popular kids, 
why would you did you feel you needed a defensive click that's an interesting that's an interesting question um was being left out enough in a sense maybe um I don't know. I saw an interesting study. Uh, I didn't see the study itself. I saw an article recently about a study that apparently concluded that having someone, ha being able to hate some large group of others can give your life meaning or can affect how much your life has, has perceived meaning. Jesus. And like, it's not hard to go back and think about like the grunge age as being like, yeah, I guess that makes sense. Um, so maybe it wasn't even defensive. Was it kind of in a weird way offensive, meaning you couldn't hate these people openly because they were powerful. Right. But this was your way of hating them. See, I don't know if it's all that unique though. I mean, what you know, oh, I don't aren't, mean aren't so many of the saying... aren't so many of the films and books about kind of growing up and the kind of coming of age stories about folks who are kind of like outcasts who are defensive in some sort of way? Like, wasn't Holden Caulfield defensive? Yeah, but I'm, um, I'm, what I'm wondering is whether it's really properly deemed defensive, but ra or as ra opposed to being really kind of an offense, right? Like, yeah, you weren't seeking yeah. out the click to protect you. Right. You were seeking out the click as to have a space to express your hatred of the dominant class. Yeah, that's probably, I mean, there was definitely a lot of kvetching about, about like how we're misunderstood. Because you weren't <laughs> There's a lot of mistreated or actively that. abused, right? Uh, no, no, I was, I was almost by design. I was ignored. Yeah. Yeah. Which is a different kind of pain. Right. I mean, and I, I, I'm not suggesting that it isn't one. Right. Uh, I'm just wondering why you would think yourself defensive if not being mistreated. But I do, I think that feeling deliberately ignored is a good enough reason for a 16 year old or a 15 year old, you know? Yeah. I mean, this actually brings us to another interesting potential difference between metal and grunge. Um, I don't know if this is a difference, but it seems like one, the metal attitude was a sort of um, kind of like, we just want to go over here and have a good time. Like Absolutely. We, we just want to go over here and have a good time. Just yes. leave us the fuck alone. Yes. And the grunge thing was, it felt to me more like it was like, fuck you. And I'm saying that because I need you. And I know that I'm sort of dependent on you to have a sense of self. A and that's why I hate you. It's a much more conflicted. Yeah. Mindset. Yeah. It's I mean, not, it's, it's, it's not a pure this. It's not hardcore it's, punk and it's not metal yeah it's not just that i mean yeah. I, I like to think of the difference between like the part you know the drug of choice in the metal uh age was cocaine and the drug of choice in the grunge age was heroin that tells you a lot <laughs> like you know cocaine is like a aggressive drug heroin is like uh i'm gonna do this alone in my room so that i can just like yeah drop out drug <laughs> i would have said if you'd asked me what's the drug of choice of metal i would say booze oh yeah right but it's the Which same sort of thing it's a like, violent drug right, I mean, right. if you if you if you drink alone you're pathetic if you do heroin alone you're doing it right, right. No, like, no, no, absolutely i i don't think it changes the logic of what you're saying at all i think booze and cocaine both make the point that that, that you're trying to make yeah um, um, yeah um and and they weren't drinking alone i mean you know that I mean I've been yeah. to enough metal shows and seen what you do in the parking lot. You're drinking together is what you're doing. Um, and listen, right. half the reason you go is for that drinking in the parking lot. Right. 
Now, I don't know what grunge I've never been to. I've only wrong. I have been to a grunge show. I've, I've seen both Alice in Chains and Hammerbox, which is a smaller Seattle band. Yeah. yeah. Um, but um, not to be confused Manhattan, with Candlebox. It was in the who, city. Who is not a Seattle band. <laughs> it was in the city, though. So there's no tailgating. So I have no idea like what people in the suburbs when they went to grunge shows. Was there a yeah. lot of tailgating? A lot of I, I never really went to any of the concerts. I, li- I just I live too far from any like viable venue. Yeah, I think that look and summarizing and, and, and we only have a couple of minutes, but let me just say one thing in closing and we can. The nice thing about this is we could talk as many times as we like. Yeah. Um, I think the issue about authenticity and perform and being performative is very spot on. And I will say it was always an obstacle to me with, with the grunge music. And that's precisely because I seek out entertainment so as not to swim in my own pool of shit. I want a fantasy, a power fantasy. I want yeah. an escape. I want, yeah. that's why I'm doing it. Um, I'm not going seeking entertainment as part of my, I don't know, life management or coaching or, or, right development right. or, or or anything like that um and so precisely the thing that the grungers hated about it is what i i loved the fact that it was performative yeah and larger than life come yeah. on the first concert i saw that i started with was kiss in 1977 yeah. yeah which was about the biggest spectacle you could get aside from a prog rock show like a yes show or elp mm-hmm. or something mm-hmm. so that's always what I thought it would, what I went to it for, right? So when when I loved hair metal, at least the, the early part of it, before it became ridiculous, like by the, by Poison, I thought it was ridiculous. Yeah. But like the first two Motley Crue albums, the, some of the really the early, you know, the, you know the late the Van Halen largely is responsible for creating the sound and the look, even though they didn't wear makeup, they were very mm-hmm. beautiful. Um, yeah. Especially Eddie and David. Um, oh, Eddie was an act. Eddie was just straightforwardly an act, and you knew that, and he told you that. So grunge, actually, I'm like, I can see those people on the corner on 14th Street. Why the fuck would I buy an album by him, right? I mean, why would I want to go to a concert? I want to go and see Gene Simmons standing on top of a castle throwing breathing fire, and I'll go to a concert yeah. for right. But but to see some guy, listen to some guy whine and. Yeah, yeah, and look like a bum, and and you know, so yeah, I mean, I think that that's a huge, you know, what are you doing going to the music yeah. for? Right, um, right. Is it is it? Yeah, I, it's so hard to think about like where where their traction would have come to that. It's just those are two polarities of art. I mean, you you there's art that's kind of the gritty realism where you're kind of like supposed to look at how life looks, but from the outside, so you can kind of yeah. connect with it differently. Yeah. And then there's the, there's the art that's up here, whereas the whole job is to look up to it uh, so that maybe it yeah. gives you something to aspire to or be yeah. entertained by. A rock and star. And, by and, yeah. Yeah, well, it's, here, there are two polarities. And here's the thing, and I don't know, we didn't talk about demographics in class, but metal is largely a blue collar phenomenon. Right. And people... Um, um, Paul Stanley from Kiss says this all the time, right? It's like some guy is working in a fucking mechanic shop and he comes home filthy every day. 
he wants to go see a rock star. He doesn't want to see another dirty, filthy loser who, who, yeah, who yeah. you know, he wants a rock, you know, he wants a yeah. fantasy, right? And that's what they're giving him. They're giving him a fantasy, right? Um, right. Whereas um, the opposite is kind of like grunge, I think was more like, like, a, like a white collar sort of thing. And like you, you want something to sort of channel anger that either you, you think you're supposed to have, or that you, you do have, and you're in an environment where you're not really supposed to like, yeah, like you're not supposed to have it. And, and uh, yeah, especially for suburbanites, it strikes me that that grunge would be, would be powerful. Right. I mean, in a similar way, that punk was um um in that in that there's a kind of a stifling quality yeah not that you're poor it's not that you know you don't have the same problem that the the waitress and the mechanic have where that problem is the sort that leads them to want an escape escapism in their entertainment yeah the problems you face are of a sort that send you not so much in search of escapism and more as search of sort of understanding or like so venting something that yeah that, yeah, that you, makes you sense feel like you have an avenue that makes sense that, to me i think yeah, so yeah yeah well they listen this was a lot of fun thank you yeah. um yeah, man. again this was kevin's idea and if mariah does wind up running writing growing up emo yeah we should do some kind of a round table yeah <laughs> for, sure. Um, for sure um but anyway good seeing you you too dan and i'll talk to you soon take care ciao